0: hello and welcome to the truth for doubt discussion series where we interview people who are way smarter than we will ever be privileged of being and this week is absolutely no exception to that we interview dr alex xiao kai tsung research professor in the philosophy department at zhejiang university in hangzhou china alex please let me know how poorly i pronounce those names but Dr. Alex joins us to speak specifically about his book on Hegel, the famed philosopher from the 19th century. Dr. Alex helps us understand the influence that he not only had in philosophy, but also in theology and how you can see his thoughts still echoed in modern philosophers and theologians. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me. This has been a um, uh, an interview that i've been really excited about uh for a while i have been reading your book on hegel and it's it's blown my mind you're one of those people who i just pray that god someday gives me just a sliver of your brain power but uh uh thank you so much for joining me um you go by alex right because i know it's different on the, yeah, on the cover of the book right awesome awesome and uh can, so can you just start off with just you know, telling everybody a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, uh, where you live, um, and all of that good stuff. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Um, it's truly an honor.
1: Um, yeah, so so I'm Alex. I was born in Taiwan, and I immigrated to Canada with my parents at the age of 12. So when you hear me talk, you can still hear a little accent here and there. Um I spent most of my time in Vancouver, BC. That's where I grew up, and uh, I'm actually a fourth-generation Christian. Oh wow! So, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah,
2: um,
1: um, my my grandparents came to faith um, through uh, American missionaries. And they, they led my great-grandma to faith. That's why I call myself a fourth-generation Christian. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I currently reside in China. I teach philosophy here. Although I'm not a philosopher by trade, I I was trained as a theologian, and I specialize in the theology of Karl Barth, although I'm not a Barthian. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right, I, I was brought up as a um, just a um, um, conservative evangelical in a very loose sense, in a very broad sense. I was never exposed to um, the Reformed faith until I was in college. Um, I went to this summer camp um, in New York um, called the Reformed Institute. And there, I, I met a few students from Westminster Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. and they introduced me to um, the the apologetics of Cornelius Van Til, and that was when I became interested in um, Reformed theology. That I, I became really passionate in defending the faith. Um, so, so I, I think that was when I decided to to uh, go into theology. I started off as a physics student in college. And um, when I was graduating, I I had to make a decision whether to uh, proceed with physics or, uh, do, something else, um, or not do, th- do something else or not do something else or um, pursue a career in theology. And I decided that it was my calling to do theology. And because of my cultural background, um, I've always felt this um, this calling um, that I, I should do theology in, in China. Um, I th- I've always thought that would be a meaningful thing to do. Um, I think it's a place where theology um, can make a difference. Well, well, theology can make a difference anywhere in the world. But um, in China, it's a... It, unique um environment where theology can do things that um that might be hard to imagine in places like canada or the states um, and that's why i'm here although um, there's no theology department in chinese universities for obvious reasons that's why i'm um in uh, philosophy or in the philosophy department
2: mm-hmm.
0: Wow. So, you said that theology can can kind of enact, I, I guess, a, a certain kind of change where you are right now, where it couldn't in, in Canada and stuff like that. So, what what do you really mean by that? Um, like more of like a cultural change or or a political change, or, or can you explain that a little bit? Um. Well, cultural change and um,
1: and also. Um, I would say, yeah, political change, although not immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in the, the uh, 1980s and 1990s, there was this uh, open and reform program in China. Um, this open and reform program was uh, initiated by, uh, by Deng Xiaoping. Um, it was sort of to, to open up China to the West economically mm-hmm. and also ideologically. And that was a time when a lot of Chinese scholars looked into why um, the Western world thrived um, in so many different areas like the sciences and um, the rule of law, democracy, uh, and especially economics or economy. Um, So so that was a time when a lot of Chinese scholars uh, studied figures like uh, Max Weber um, who was this German thinker, uh, sociologist slash philosopher, who had this thesis that it was Christianity or Protestantism in particular that influenced the West or Western countries like uh, Britain Mm -hmm. and Germany in such a way that capitalism was introduced to the West. And it was not um, the form of Uh, laissez-faire capitalism as we know it today. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that we are free uh, to uh, maximize profit by unbound or unlimited capital. But Rather, it was a time when the Puritans Puritans believed that we should be responsible before God and Mm -hmm. uh, all careers, as long as they are lawful or divine callings or divine vocations. Um, so people started treating their jobs seriously uh, as if they were serving God by baking bread mm-hmm. or being farmers um, or farming. Um, and this Thesis really attracted a lot of Chinese scholars back in the 80s and 90s. And even today, there are a lot of scholars in China who identify themselves as mm-hmm. uh, followers of Weber, And also people looked into uh, thinkers like Kant and Hegel mm-hmm. and Locke, uh, identifying them as basically Christian thinkers. Um and they wanted to see how that um that made a change in the west and and the goal of course was to to follow this model of um of the road to (laughs) to be becoming a great nation um that that's the motive behind it uh but then when people look into Christian influences on um, Western civilization, some of them started to identi- identify themselves as cult- cultural Christians. Mainly mm. they don't go to church, but then culturally they um, identify with Christianity. And eventually some of them got baptized and joined churches. And there's this whole synol. Christian theology movement in uh, in the Chinese speaking world. Mm-hmm. It's based in Hong Kong, but the majority of Sino Christian scholars are mainland Chinese. Um, and even today, I think they are still making and uh, making a difference in China. And personally, when I when I teach philosophy at undergrad level or even the graduate level here in China although I'm not allowed to talk about theology mm-hmm. directly I can tell them about say um, the Puritan background of John Locke's philosophy right yeah and his view of property mm-hmm. um, and, um, I can talk about how Thomas Jefferson changed um, Locke's uh, phrase to the pursuit of happiness um, and how Richard Pratt says um, that this is the great American heresy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And a lot of them actually get very attracted to to this Christian background behind Mm -hmm. uh, Log or Kant. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And Actually, one of them who, who went on to St. Andrews to study philosophy um, last year started uh, talking to me about personal faith. So wow. I get to evangelize to him. That's at a personal level. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, that's exciting. That's that's really cool to hear. So I guess that's a a good segue into Hegel and into these uh, these thinkers. Um, So you wrote a book, like I mentioned before, on Hegel with the, uh, it's called the Great Thinkers Series. Is that correct? With PNR Publishing? Yeah. Yeah. So I've, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. PNR Publishing Group. Yeah. And uh, I've had the uh, privilege of being able to read through a few of them now. Um, My head hasn't stopped hurting for the last like month and a half, but it's been great. Uh, So it's um, uh, definitely some heavy, heavy reading, but some really good and important reading. Um, so I guess before we dive into to Hegel, I know I said we were about to dive into him, but uh, why do you think it's important for Christians to to have an understanding of these great thinkers and to um, dive a little bit into uh, some philosophy? Um, do you think that's important? And if so, why do you think it's important for Christians to do that?
1: Well, yeah, certainly. I um, When I was in college, uh, my second major was um, was German. And in one of our courses, we had to read Sigmund Freud. Hmm. And one student said to the professor that Sigmund Freud in in the field of philosophy, oh, sorry, in, in, in the field of psychology is considered outdated. So why are we reading him in a German course? And the professor's response was that, well, consciously or not, we are all indoctrinated by his ideas and the ideas of all these great thinkers in the past. And um, when we study them, we, we get to understand where some of our ideas come from. And I think it's very important for Christians to to be self-critical in terms of um, building up our own worldviews. We all subscribe, uh, as Christians, we all subscribe to the authority of Scripture and um, we try to adhere to the teachings of Scripture. Um, But then a lot of the time, um, the ideas that we have, um, the ideas that we are indoctrinated with by our society, are there subconsciously, um, and we do, we don't know or, or we haven't discovered that these ideas are actually in conflict with scripture. Mm. And if we want to be committed to Jesus Christ, um, uh, this is a phrase from Great Bonson, and if we wanted, if we want to be committed to Christ, we have to be committed to him at every point, um, because Christianity is a worldview. Mm. So, so I think uh, studying these great philosophers in the past can help us um, sort out um, the the the, the self contradictions in our worldviews um, and um, the, the the conflicts between some of these ideas that we are indoctrinated with with scripture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's unbelievably important, and I think that, like you said, I mean, a lot of people they don't they don't know they have all these uh you know ideas kind of floating around in their head or or even when they read other theologians um they don't know that they have been influenced those old uh, great theologians themselves have been influenced by some of these great right. thinkers as well so yeah that's that's a that's great and so why why Hegel for you why do they um I don't really know the whole process behind writing the book or anything like that but um do you have a, a specific interest personally in Hegel, and is that why you you've become uh, such a, an amazing expert on him, or or how did uh, how did Hegel become the the guy that they wanted you to write about?
1: Um, right, my, my background is uh, is in modern theology, and um, I specialize in the theology of Bart and, of course, Hegel, as well as Kant. Mm-hmm. Um, have influenced Bart to a very significant extent, and I, I would identi- identify myself as a Vantillian. and Vantill's doctoral thesis was actually on Hegel, so, um, so Hegel influenced all of these people, um, and I, I think it's because of my past publications on Bart that PNR. Wanted me to write a book on Hegel uh, mm-hmm. because I, I mentioned Hegel quite frequently in my uh, books and articles on on Bard, but um, I, I wouldn't call myself a Hegel scholar or an expert on Hegel. Sure, um, right. right, but um, I think Hegel is important for for me as a. Um, uh, as someone who specializes in modern theology, because when we talk about modern theology, um, what do we, what do we mean by modern? Um, a lot of scholars, um, scholars like Bruce McCormick or Carl um, Amricks have uh, pointed out that the most important trait of modernity is um, what they call historical conscious, consciousness, this consciousness of history being history as we understand it in our context today. Mm -hmm. Um, In ancient Greece or in in ancient Rome or in early modernity, this understanding of history was basically just uh, uh, an, an account of what has happened. That's what they understood by history. Uh, the Greek word "historia" basically means the truth behind what has happened. Um, so, so historians didn't really care about um, uh, sorting out the the causes behind these historical events, and um, this uh, this um, linkage. Uh, between events as what what, what happened and a chain of causes in time Mm -hmm. is really a modern invention. And Hegel is uh, probably one of the most influential thinkers between this view of history. Um, uh, The technical term for it is historicism. Um, Historicism is this... uh, philosophical worldview, which thinks of history as purposive activity. So today we talk about historical development. We, we talk about some countries being um, developing countries, some countries being developed countries. This is um, a very historicist view of the world. And this, this idea of causal development with events, um, um is a very German idealist uh, notion, and Hegel was the great figure in German idealism, mm-hmm. imposed Kantian German idealism.
0: All right. Well, I guess in regards to to history, can you can you give us a little bit of a history of of Hegel and and kind of I guess maybe sketch him out for us as as a person before we get into uh, his philosophy? Like, what are the uh, things that were going on in the world at the time that he was kind of rising to prominence, uh, prominence and um, just, just kind of giving us a picture of who he was. Can you can you do that for us?
1: Yeah, um, Hegel. Um, I, I think that the most interesting fact that I I love to mention about him was that he was not trained as a philosopher, but rather he was trained as a theologian. Although. Um, he became disappointed with theology and um, um, and the church in Germany in general um, because of corruptions and other things. Um, so he became a philosopher, but um, even his philosophy, um, e- even when he became a philosopher, um, his philosophy was deeply theological. Mm. Um, the, the 19th-century German philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche has this interesting um, quote about Hegel and um, and German philosophy. Uh, the quote goes like this: If you want to know what German theology, oh, or sorry, German philosophy in our day is all about, just think Tübingen Stift, or the, the the seminary in Tübingen, and you will know what it is all about. It's just theology in disguise. So to which Hegel's philosophy is in fact theology in disguise. Of course, uh, this theological and metaphysical reading of Hegel isn't popular in uh, English-speaking academia today. Um, uh, As to why it's not popular, um, I think there are a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is um, secularization, Mm. uh, and also the rise of um, analytic philosophy in the 20th century. Um, But anyway, back to Hegel. So he was trained as a theology student at the Protestant seminary in Tübingen. I was there last year, last uh, April, uh, to attend a, a conference on Augustine. So I actually walked the staircase where Hegel walked with um, Schelling and Herderling, who were his roommates at Trübingen, wow. um, and that was an amazing experience. Um, so, so Hegel's time was characterized by, uh, I would say, uncertainties um, in between the times. That's a that phrase coined in the 20th century to describe the time of figures like Karl Barth and Emil Brunner. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the the phrase also applies to Hegel. So so he lived in a post-Kantian age. Kant, of course, um, I would characterize him as a basically Christian thinker, and I would offer a, actually, a theological reading of Kant, and um, I actually have a book on Kant coming out in the same series um, with PNR.
0: Um, oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, but although um, although that was his intention, um, the net result of his philosophy was um, a rapid this uh, decline of interest in theology mm. uh in the university. So, people of Hegel's time, if they consider themselves cultured, um the German word for cultured is gebildet. If they consider themselves gebildet, that would mean that they wouldn't go to church, or if they did, they would consider religion some kind of an Uh, a cultural thing or a a form of art. They didn't really believe in the object of worship um, in the church. So, So in those days, if you would identify yourself as a believer in the tenets of Christianity, then you would be considered uncultured. One of um, Hegel's contemporaries was uh, Schleiermacher. Mm-hmm. Schleiermacher wrote a very important book um, called Speeches on Religion, um, oh, or on Religion, Speeches to its Cultured despisers. So he was in Berlin, and, and in his circle were all these great cultured people in Germany, like, like Schlegel, and they were unbelievers, and they looked at Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was the most, cultured person in that group and um they became intrigued because Schleiermacher pursued a career in the ecclesiastical office and in theology so he was obviously a believer and um he was very pious in his personal life not with notwithstanding his um theology mm-hmm. that is basically unbiblical. Um, even Charles Hodge um, had this um, this account of how how pious, um, how godly Schleiermacher was in his personal faith and life. Um, so people looked at Schleiermacher and said, you are the most cultured person among us. Why do you believe in God? So he wrote this book addressing these people. And, and that was the, the cultural milieu. Um, in which Hegel grew up. So it was the post-Kantian age where Christian theology was falling out of favor among academics, although politically, um these governments in these different German um uh, states and municipalities um still wanted to use christianity as a way of promoting german nationhood and um a a means of political control so there was actually for example there was actually a censorship program in prussia where philosophers were not allowed to um to criticize christian theology wow that yeah that program uh took place um just before the publication of the second edition of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Mm. So so it was um, an odd time where it was politically correct to, to believe in Christianity for the average person but then it was considered out of favor for academics to be true believers. And Hegel, Um, despite this overall um, cultural background, still decided to go to seminary. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But then um, when he was in Tübingen, he was under the influence of, um, first, um, a revival of interest in in Spinoza at that time. Uh, And that was also partly because of Kant Kant's critical philosophy was um, such that um, he, um, after him, people would see God as unknowable in the field of theoretical reason. So, mm-hmm. so theoretical theology or rational theology became unviable after Kant, and and people who still tried to hold on to rational believe in God, um, by the way, Kant actually espoused rational faith in God, but mm-hmm. people tend to overlook that. Uh, anyway, um, people who s- still wanted to um, run the rational theology looked, for, uh, looked to favors like Spinoza. Um, one of the reasons was that Spinoza identified God with nature. So God is nature and nature is God. Mm. Um, this is not to say that God is a, a huge material being, huge corporeal being, um, because nature is not identical with the universe. Um, nature, more as um, the the laws or the, the logos that that sustains um, the whole universe, and that that is God. Um, Einstein, when he talks about God, actually has this Spinozist view of God. Mm. Um, So once you identify God with nature and you say that nature is knowable to human reason, then God becomes knowable. Mm. So philosophers um, in Europe looked to Spinoza um, for an answer to Kant. Of course, that didn't really work because Spinoza was before Kant, and Kant criticized Spinoza uh, very powerfully. That's why Hegel, although he was influenced by Spinoza, he had to come up with his own philosophy that doesn't directly identify God with nature or the universe or um whatnot. Um but he he was influenced by Spinoza. The other influence that, uh, that was particular to um the German Southwest, to to um, the region where Tubingen is in, um, was um, German Pietism. This uh, mystical Pietism that was popular in the German uh, the German Southwest, and this is a tradition that is quite different from Lutheran Orthodoxy or Reformed Orthodoxy. Both w- both of which would stress the transcendence of God and therefore the essential unknowability of God. Um, That is not to say that God is unknowable to human reason. God is knowable to us through revelation. But when um, Reformed Orthodoxy and Lutheran Orthodoxy following St. Augustine say that God is unknowable per essentium, in his essence, uh, it is to say that we cannot use our intellect to directly cognize God. Um, we can only know God through His revelation in history, if we want to use a um, modern category. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so that that's um, that's Lutheran and Reformed orthodoxy. That that's historic. Protestantism. But in mystical pietism, of course, this transcendence, although it's not denied, um, there are these mystical practices in which the believers can meditate on God and have this spiritual connection with God that is um, that, that sort of drags God down from heaven mm-hmm. and, um, um so, so this downplay of divine transcendence was um, was popular in that region and and Hegel also came under that influence. Um, so in Hegel's philosophy, you would see this um, this response to Kant by, um, by undermining the transcendence of God. Basically, what Kant says is that God is transcendent, thus unknowable to human reason. And what Hegel wants to say is God is knowable to us because God is not as transcendent as Kant says he is or as Mm -hmm. transcendent as historic Christianity says says he is. So that's uh, another influence that, that Hegel came under. And politically, Um, there was the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. which then later developed into the Napoleonic Wars. Um, And Hegel, with his two roommates, Höderling and Schelling, was avid supporters of revolutionary ideals in their youth. Especially... um, that the version espoused by Rousseau. Of course, Rousseau lived before the revolution, but Rousseau was the, the philosopher who was um, the most popular among the Jacobins, uh, more so than uh, Voltaire. And the interesting thing about Rousseau as, in, as an enlightenment thinker was that he was not an atheist. He actually believed in God and he believed that there's a role for religion to play in modern society, in, in democratic societies. He um, he was born in Geneva um, at the age of 15. He, he left town and failed to go back to, into town before curfew, so, so he had to find shelter in uh, the na- neighboring na- uh, region of Savoy. So he stayed at a priest's, a, a Catholic priest's house. And that priest, introduced him to a lady who converted from Calvinism to uh, Catholicism. And, and Rousseau had an affair with that lady and he converted to Catholicism. But then later on in, in his life, he went back to Geneva. He became a citizen of Geneva. And in, in order to be a citizen with voting rights in Geneva, you had to be a Calvinist. So he converted back to uh, Calvinism. Um, And you can find influences of both Catholicism and Calvinism and in Rousseau's thought, um, especially this Augustinian core um, understanding of freedom. You can find it in Rousseau. And that was something that also influenced Hegel in his youth, although later on in his life, he would depart from this view of freedom and he would also depart from uh, this youthful revolutionary ideal. But even when he he was an extraordinary professor in Vienna, um, extraordinary doesn't mean that he was outstanding. Extraordinary means that he was outside the system, so he was not, he was unsalaried. Um, when he was an extraordinary uh, professor in Vienna, Napoleon came into town and left the city in ruins, but even then he he looked upon Napoleon with com- complicated feelings. He said that Napoleon was was the embodiment of the spirit of his age, so he admired Napoleon, but he also saw the destructions that Napoleon brought about. Mm. So he so had these conflicting feelings about the French Revolution, about um, Napoleon, he had these complicated feelings about philosophy as well. Um, it was a time when um, Europeans in general, and especially philosophers like Hegel and Richter, um were trying to look for a new direction, both for philosophy and for politics, which was closely connected to philosophy um, mm-hmm during the Enlightenment. So so I would say that Hegel's time was one characterized by uncertainties about where they were going. Um, And Hegel's importance, or or one one, um, aspect of Hegel's importance was that he, he pointed to a new direction in both philosophy and politics, and perhaps culture civilization in general, um, by laying down this theological foundation, or basically theological and metaphysical foundation for a modern view of history,
2: Mm.
1: Um, and pointed Europe and the Western world um, to hopes Um, in an eschaton, so to say, that can actually be realized um, in history and not uh, after the end of history.
0: Mm. Wow. Uh, So (laughs) there was a lot going on, it seems like, in in his lifetime and, and just in the world in general. And so let's let's get into that. What you just kind of ended on, um, just the, the influence that he had. Uh, so he had all of these different philosophers and, and theologians, kind of you know, informing his own worldview. But what made Hegel uh, stand out? What was different about um, his own particular take on these things? Because I know that he agreed with Kant on some things, like you said, and then and other things you just disagreed and kind of built upon. So what what made Hegel's uh, philosophical ideals different? Hmm. Um,
1: I think the majority of Anglophone scholars in our day would say that um, his contribution was primarily to, to social changes and to our View of science, for example, he, he had the science of logic that that tried to hold different disciplines together, um, because knowledge after Kant or scientific knowledge after Kant um, became increasingly disintegrated, and he mm. he sort of offered this all. Um, incorporating worldview the the war, worldview by the way came from philosophers like hegel and um and schleimacher idealists of his generation we we might go into that term uh, a little later um, um, but for for me as a theologian, Hegel is important um Because he, he he was one of the most important men um, of his age who revived um, theology mm-hmm. as a science. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I use the word science um, not in the, the the sense of the natural sciences, but uh, the more traditional. Uh, way of uh, talking about science as scientia, uh any system of knowledge can be called a science. Um, theoretical system of knowledge. Um, after Kant, the scientific status of theology um, came to be undermined, and Hegel revived theology as a science. Um, Hegel revived metaphysics as a science, but the way he did it was to say that God is knowable um, to human reason um, because of an ultimate identity between God and man. Um, that identity is not immediate, so he doesn't um, identify God with nature like Spinoza does. God for Hegel is not God yet. Um, God is in the process of becoming God, and we are all part of that process. Mm -hmm. So, um, if we look at history, especially the history of thought, and look at the development of human consciousness through history. we can think after it that uh he uses the word nachdenken which means after thinking so so after all that has taken place we go back to reflect on it to to think after it and and that does something that that uh, that serves as sort of a mirror that reflects the future um so so uh so from where we came from, uh, if we trace the development um, of the history of thought, we can uh, we can identify the ultimate future of human consciousness, and that ultimate future is what he calls absolute spirit, um, namely God, and and then we use that concept of God. Um, as the, the unifying principle um, well, that's not Hegel's term um, that's more of a Kantian term but yeah we, 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 we use God as a principle to interpret the whole of history and then history makes sense and not just history but all phenomena in the world mm-hmm. um so so he has this basically metaphysical and theological view of history that sees history as meaningful and propulsive. And that um that also made God knowable to human reason in his system. So um so his theology was appealing to um To many philosophers, theologians in the nineteenth century, Mm -hmm. and that is one of the reasons why um, the transcendence of God tends to be downplayed in modern European theology. Mm -hmm. Um, Hegel was one of the chief influences; the other would be Mm Schleiermacher. So, if you want to understand the development of um, modern German philosophy or modern continental philosophy, understanding crucial, uh, Hegel would be crucial. Um, that's why um, when I was a doctoral student, um we had to read a lot of Hegel.
0: Wow. yeah, you you mentioned uh, in the book that hegel and, and Schleiermacher had uh, kind of like a rivalry going on, right? right. what What was that about? What exactly? Were they just like writing letters back and forth to each other, kind of saying to each other has horrible philosophy and theology? Um,
1: um they, they weren't just writing letters. They were actually colleagues um, in Berlin. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, Schleimacher was the, the chief person who um, who got Hegel to join Berlin. Um. Hegel was famous um, for his um, uh, phenomenology of spirit. He became famous almost overnight, and um, there were all these universities fighting for him. But finally, he joined Berlin, and it was primarily because of Sch- because of Schleiermacher. So, so at first, Schleiermacher liked Hegel, and Hegel. Um, joined Berlin. Berlin was this um, new university um, that that was basically the first modern research university in the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Hegel joined Berlin and became colleagues with Schleiermacher. But then they had very different personalities and they um, one of them was a theologian, the other a philosopher. And Hegel didn't think that um, theology would have a future. Theology would be sublated, which means theology would make way for philosophy. And Hegel thought that his age was ripe for theology to make way for philosophy. But then Schleimacher insisted that we must uh, retain Christian theology. We must retain the traditional doctrines or even dogmas of the church, even though we we don't need to really believe in these dogmas literally, they are there to stay. So, so he was determined to be a theologian all his life. And Hegel despised the, theology. Uh, he, he actually didn't. He didn't despise theology. But um, Schleimacher and a lot of his uh, colleagues in theology thought that Hegel despised theology. Mm. Um, Hegel was a much more robust thinker and much more gifted thinker than Schleiermacher. Um, but then he was not nearly as successful as Schleiermacher was at that time. Schleiermacher was in, influential not just in the church, he pushed for this reform in the church that was hugely su- successful. Um, he was a member of the, or, or a pastor in the Reformed Church. Uh, but then he he was influence- influential among the Lutherans as well, and he brought these two together. But he wasn't just influential in the church. He was um, one of the leading figures in German academia. Um, he was the most influential founder of the Humboldt University of Berlin, um, more um, influential than Alexander Humboldt himself. He was basically the leading figure. And also in the, um, in, uh, I think it was called the, the Berlin Academy of, of Science. Well, the, the name has changed over time and I forgot what the name was in his time, but um, that Academy of Science refused to let Hegel join. Because because of Schleiermacher, um, mm. Schleiermacher was basically the boss of the the academy. Um, so so yeah, they, they didn't get along. Um, part of the rivalry might have been jealousy. Um, Schleiermacher thought that Hegel despised him, and um, and Hegel was more gifted than than he was, and Hegel. Might have been jealous of Shlaimaqa as well because he was obviously more gifted than Shlaimaqa, but he didn't have the kind of influence that Shlaimaqa had, right. um, or the fame. Hmm. So, so yeah, that was the the rivalry. And oh yeah, one interesting story was um, um, there was this uh, um, thinker uh, by the name of uh. Strauss, um, David Strauss, David Strauss. um, He wrote this book um, called "Das Leben Yes" "The the Life of Jesus Critically Examined." It was one of the uh, um, forerunners of uh, modern historical critical uh, scholarship of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Strauss. Was already an established academic um, at a very young age, but he he admired Hegel, so he decided to give up a professorial post and go to Berlin to study with Hegel. But when he arrived, Hegel had just died. Um, and,
2: oh,
1: wow. yeah, and his oh, so- uh, meeting with with Schleiermacher, and Schleiermacher said said to Strauss um do you know that hegel has just died and uh, strauss blurted out i came here to study with hegel <laughs> <So> <laughs> oh man <laughs> probably not like that <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh that's oh man that's that, that's sad and funny all at the same time oh uh, yeah God. Man, well, switching gears a, a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned in in the book, um, you had this little little quote thing, uh, that said that um, that God in the Old Testament often would raise up pagans to to kind of make Israel kind of remember what they had lost or what they'd forgotten in God. And so, mm-hmm. I was wondering, is that is that kind of how you see Hegel with with Christianity? Like God may have raised up Hegel to to kind of wake some Christians up to. Uh, to studying God correctly.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say basically yes. Um, I would say that at the most basic level, Hegel's philosophy and theology are at odds with the fundamental tenets of the Bible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, chiefly because of his denial of God's transcendence, it's not a simple denial to be sure. Mm -hmm. Um, That distinction between the transcendent and the imminent, especially in his later philosophy of religion, would be there to stay. So he doesn't completely wipe out God's transcendence, and yet it's still severely undermined in his Mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, And yet the way he saw himself was... That he saw himself as a friend to Christianity.
2: Hmm.
1: And he thought of himself as doing Christianity a favor. And um, we do need to acknowledge that um, he he did make a lot of positive contributions to Christian um, theology. And uh, well, that's a point. Acknowledged by Herman Bavinck. Mm -hmm. In fact, Bavinck, if if you look at his mature writings, like his uh, four-volume dogmatics, Mm -hmm. you would recognize two sets of terminologies at work. One would be um, traditional Latin Christian terms, um, especially a um, reformed rendition of those terms. But the other set of terminologies would be modern German idealist vocabularies, um, chiefly those of Hegel. Um, although he, he does use uh, a lot of Schleimach, Schleimacherian terms as well, I, I don't think those terms form what. Would call uh, a grammar. Um, of course, Cory Brock says that there is a Schleimacherian grammar in Baffin. I, I don't think so, but I do think that there is an idealist grammar in there, and that idealist grammar is primarily um determined by Hegel. And in the past, um, scholars on Baffinck would say that he is at odds with himself in his use of these two different sets of vocabularies. So he wants to please um, secular academics. Um, He also wanted to please the church. Then there are two babings, the academic German idealist babing and the orthodox babing. That thesis has been um, challenged in um, recent years most uh, significantly, I think, by James Eglinton and his students at Edinburgh. And I think they have successfully proven that Bavink was critically appreciative of Hegel. Um, so he still saw Hegel as ultimately um, a threat to Christianity that had to be overcome, but then Hegel also inspired um christian theology in positive ways mm-hmm. especially hegel's turn to history as an understand as an unfolding of god's plan mm-hmm. um this focus on history was absent before the long 19th century before kant before hegel and schleiermacher um to understand God's revelation in historical terms was something characteristically modern. Um, The problem with modern German uh, theologians like Anstology was that they still um, appeal to the imminence of God in history at the expense of God's transcendence. So the eschaton became something that is to take place Um, In this world, that that can be uh, something that can be realized here and now. And what Baffin tried to do was to retain God's transcendence as traditionally understood in Latin theology. But then to appeal to history as um, the way God manifests his will. Mm. And that's the positive contribution that Hegel gave to Christianity. And I, I so, so for that reason, um, I, uh, I think Hegel is not just a simple pagan like um, like uh, uh, the
0: Babylonians. Right,
2: right. <laughs> right.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, I I was just reading through, through, um, kind of the back half of your book, I suppose, where, uh, it's, it's talking about just Hegel's influences on, uh, these, these big name Christians who, who I admire a lot, like, you know, Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, um, uh, Bavink, like you said, and then, um, another one that I was surprised by and I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know about the other ones either. Um, but is, uh, oh, I'm picturing him in my head right now. He had a very old, uh, the Christian Manifesto. Who is that guy? Um, uh, oh, uh, it's in your book. You got to remember this. Yeah. Um, oh, what is his name? Man, um, it's at the tip of my tongue. But, well, anyway, the the, the author who wrote uh, the Christian Manifesto, very important uh, Christian thinker. Um, but... Uh, uh, but but the fact that he had an influence on on all of these people in, in these very particular ways I think is um, is re- really an interesting thing and then and what you said a little bit earlier how bavink had this uh, like how did you word it like a critical appreciation of Hegel um, mm-hmm. is do you think that is how? we as Christians should approach theology, or not theology, but, but philosophy when we read these thinkers is kind of have this critical appreciation.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So yeah, yeah, I, I would say yes. And uh, I think I'm inspired chiefly by think. Mm-hmm. Um. I think earlier I, I, I said I would identify myself as a and, Um uh, That's only in the field of, of apologetics, right? But in terms of theology in general, I think I'm basically a follower of Bavinck, and um, Bavinck has this idea of um, eclecticism. So so he 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 says that. Um, Christians um, when we try to build up our Christian worldviews uh, should be eclectic. That—that That is to say we should draw from all these different sources, th- these different thinkers mm-hmm. like Kant, and Hegel and Schleiermacher and Schelling and Fichte and perhaps Rousseau, um, even Voltaire, even Nietzsche.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, although um we we should only incorporate their building blocks into our own edifice. We shouldn't take the whole structure of their thought mm-hmm. um to our system that that wouldn't work. but the reason why Bavink thinks that um um we can do this without um compatibility problems
2: mm-hmm.
1: is. Um, is that all truth is God's truth, um, to put it in simple terms. And when these philosophers talk about God, um, they can never escape God's self-revelation in history. And, and so there must be proofs to what they say about God. Although systematically speaking, um, what they say about God would be idolatrous um there must be elements of proof and these are um these are actually stolen from the house of God
0: right right
1: and what Christians should do is to take them back mm-hmm. into the house of God um, and uh, and when they steal from the house of God they actually do services to the house of God to do these different building blocks in our house. Um, our brick might be broken and they steal it and they fix it. And we take <laughs> takes the, the, the fixed brick back yeah. and put it back where it should be. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's how I understand Bavink. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other uh, aspect of his eclecticism is um, this, uh, his, um, uh, this historical view of revelation that we mentioned earlier. So he was inspired by the German idealist view of history as God's Mm self-revelation. So everything that happens in history, including uh, the the history of thought, is in fact God's revelation. So in one sense, you can say that um, Kant uh, was God's historical revelation. This is not to say that um, Kantian philosophy is to be identi- identified with general revelation. No, uh, it's only Kant's reflections on general revelation, and yet mm-hmm. it takes place under God's providence, and God put Kant there for a purpose. And the way um, Bavink understands it is that God put Kant there in order to remind Christian theology of God's transcendence and incomprehensibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet still there are things that Kant says that cannot be accepted by Christians. Um, But then God put Kant there at that historic juncture for for a purpose. Mm -hmm. Same with Nietzsche, although he he doesn't really say a great deal about Nietzsche. Um, So. So, so this um this historical aspect of his understanding of Revelation means that um we should take these different thinkers in history, not not just thinkers in the West who have obviously uh, um, uh taken inspirations from Christian theology.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, all these Western thinkers in in modernity have been influenced by Christianity, but but not not just Western thinkers, Um, even thinkers like Confucius. Mm -hmm. um, You can see him in that light and understand him as someone whom God has placed uh, in a particular culture at a particular time for a particular purpose. And there must be positive things that he has to say that, uh, that we can take inspiration from.
0: Mm-hmm. That's such an important point, because I think that there are times where Christians, and, and I, I know I have done this in, in my own life, where we almost lament even the birth of some of these, these uh, thinkers, because we think that they've done so much damage uh, to their Christian mm-hmm. church. And I'm sure in some ways they, they have, but, but with that kind of perspective, you're not looking for just, you know, man's power to destroy what God's working on. You're actually seeing, mm-hmm. you know, trying to find, like you said, how God is working through these people, uh, to bring about, to bring about some good for those who love him. Uh, and I think that's, man, that's such a powerful point when you're thinking about all these guys and it, it reminds me of a, a little bit of another guy that was able to, uh, I had the privilege of interviewing um, Dr. Vern uh, Poitras and uh, he and John frames kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember how they, how they worded it. It's like the mer- multi-perspectivism, or I believe that's the correct right. uh, verbiage. And, uh, you know, kind of taking all these different perspectives on, on theology. And and I, and I interviewed Dr. Uh, Poitras about his book, Redeeming Philosophy and, and how, how it even comes in kind of exactly what you were saying. It comes into, um, trying to take all these different perspectives of these different uh, thinkers and seeing, you know, how God is actually trying to speak, speak through them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and yeah, it's just what you said and and what he said is just, you know, kind of blowing my mind right now. So (laughs) I can't thank you enough. Um,
1: I I think this point um, for me is not just something theoretical, but it's something that I I have to deal with personally Mm -hmm. in my spiritual formation. Um, especially for an academic working in China, as you said, you, you, you sometimes lament the birth of some thinkers and for a Christian who lives and works in China, I, I can't help but lament the birth of Karl Marx. Um, yeah, right, right. You, you can just feel his presence almost everywhere in this country. Yeah. And um and that that is such a threat to to freedom, to human existence, to morality, to to a true religion, to, to everything that um Christianity stands for.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And um when you feel that omnipresent or seemingly omnipresent thread of Marxism in society um, it it becomes something very personal for me Mm -hmm. Um, and I I sometimes ask God why he would um, he would raise up Karl Marx at that juncture in history and why Marxism would come to China Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and That's something I cannot make sense of. And I can only um, tell myself in my personal devotions, um, or or I can only remind myself that God is in control. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: uh, to trust in God's providence in in the kind of academia that I am in, it's something that's more than academic. It's something quite spiritual. It, it's a spiritual struggle for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, to I could I could easily keep talking to you. I was I was just kidding about the four hours, but now I'm just like you know what maybe four hours is just the right amount of time. Uh, but uh, to wrap this up, um, I, I really just want to ask you what your advice. And, and we kind of already touched on this a little bit, but what's your parting advice for? Uh, for Christians who are just starting to dip their toe in philosophy, do you have any book recommendations or or even just advice for their hearts as they're trying to wrap their head around these possibly new ideas that they've never even heard of before?
1: Um, um uh, I, I think that's a very challenging question um, for me. I, I do have a number of christian students in in my department uh, in, in the philosophy department mm. uh, where i'm teaching in china right now and to each of them i would actually give different advices um one of uh, one of my students by the way just got accepted to westminster seminary
0: that's, that's awesome man
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah um praise god um I would give them different advices Mm -hmm. um, because they they have different personalities and they're in different walks of life. Um, Some of them might be intellectually very gifted um, and uh, it it would be very easy for them to sort out the differences between the Christian worldview and non-Christian worldviews and uh, there would be no problem for them to pick up a book on Hegel and say oh this is um biblical and they, they can be very strong and very firm in their personal faith so I, I wouldn't worry about uh apostasy so so i I can just re- recommend all these um pagan books to them um but some of them might not be um as systematically trained in Christian theology. Mm -hmm. So um, so I I would recommend to them um, textbooks on on systematic theology first um, before Mm -hmm. they dive into secular theology. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm in the place at all to offer advise, as if I were a, a teacher to anybody. Um, but um, I think from my own, um, own past experience, um, I have encountered temptations, um, temptations of, say, pride, academic pride. Um, Temptations of trying to to please uh, secular academia. Um, That's not so much a temptation here in China, but it was quite a temptation when I was in Canada and then the States and the UK. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, It would be considered fashionable to read um, books and agree with books that disagree with... um, Traditional Christianity, and and for me, um, the the most um, important thing that 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 kept me from falling into those temptations was uh, was actually reading the Bible, and um, and not just reading the Bible as a uh, sort of a everyday routine, but mm-hmm. I, I was actually a pastor for five years. So so in those five years that I had to prepare a sermon every week. So I had to go really into the, the depths of those biblical passages. And I think it was that um, personal Um, may I use the word encounter? I don't like that word, but that personal encounter with God in Jesus Christ in the text of scripture, um, that helped me focus on what's really important um, in both thought and life.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, Alex, this has been uh, such an honor for me, and I can't thank you enough for taking this uh, this time to to speak with me and to to educate me and and everybody listening so uh thank you so much and uh i'll be praying for uh what you're doing in in china and um, i mean i hope we uh, can do this again sometime soon maybe about Kant next time so <laughs>
1: thank you so much michael such an honor thank you
0: thank you well uh have a good one and uh and we'll be in touch
1: you too